Good morning. Thank you for joining us today as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in our online service. I want to let you know that we're going to do something this morning we've never done before on our Easter service. We're going to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. So if you've got a piece of bread in your home or uh, some juice or maybe you got one of our little prepackaged communion cups, you might want to have that handy because after the message this morning, we are going to um, have the opportunity to celebrate together. If you're a guest joining us for the very first time, thank you for uh, being part of our online service this morning. And I hope you'll continue with us after today uh, until we can again meet and gather uh, collectively in our church. We'll be having our services online, online like this every week. So please join us again next week and in the coming weeks. If you've been with us before today, you know that our theme for this year has been one story. We've been looking at the unity of Scripture, Old and New Testaments, and seeing that they're not two disconnected books, but rather one unity presenting one great story, God's plan of redemption for His people. We've seen as we've looked at some of the Old Testament books so far this year, what we've called shadows images, prefigurings of things that point to Jesus in the New Testament. For example, when we studied the book of Numbers, we saw that there were two occasions when God used his servant Moses in a miraculous way to provide water out of a rock for the people. And uh, this may just seem like an interesting miracle taking place in the Old Testament, but when we get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul gives us these remarkable words about the Israelites. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Likewise, in the book of Numbers, there's a time when the people were uh, ill, some even dying because they'd been bitten by poisonous snakes. And God told Moses to craft a bronze snake and put it up on a pole, and everyone, God said, who looks at it will live. That may seem an unusual thing to do, but when we get to the New Testament book of John, we read Jesus saying, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. One of the most evident and often used shadows in the Old Testament is that of a lamb. Isaiah the prophet wrote that the Messiah would be like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. And when John the Baptist first laid his eyes on Jesus... We read these words in John chapter 1. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Old Testament is filled with these shadows that find their fulfillment, their substance in Jesus. But there are also many very specific written prophecies, written predictions in the Old Testament pointing to the coming, the suffering, and even the resurrection of Jesus in the new. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to his own followers. It's recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44, that Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me 
in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, number of places in the Old Testament predict the suffering of the Messiah. For example, the book of Psalms. King David wrote Psalm 22, and David lived approximately 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. In Psalm 22, David writes remarkable words like this, they have pierced my hands and my feet, clearly pointing to death by crucifixion, which was not practiced widely in David's day as it was in the time of Jesus. In Psalm 22, 18, he writes, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Again, these things specifically filled in the life of Jesus. But where was the resurrection of Jesus predicted in the Old Testament? One of the foremost places in the Old Testament that, that predicts the resurrection of Jesus from the grave is Psalm 16, another psalm written by King David. Psalm 16 clearly predicts the resurrection of the Messiah, but I also think Psalm 16 is an appropriate psalm for us to consider today because of what is happening in the world around us right now with the uncertainty, the fear, everything related to the coronavirus, I think Psalm 16 has a message for us. Last week, I spoke on the phone with someone who was asking me why I thought God allowed this virus. He may have said cause, but I, I think he, he may have said, why did God allow this to come? And I didn't really have a very good answer for him. I think I said something like, well, you know, plagues like this, uh, earthquakes, famines, disasters, natural disasters, they've been part of the human race since the very beginning. I mean, we could blame it on uh, the sin of humanity since the Garden of Eden. We could blame it on Satan. But God never promised that life on this earth would be without adversity, suffering, or difficulty. In fact, Jesus predicted before his second coming that nation would rise against nation, that there would be famines, that there would be earthquakes. Elsewhere, Jesus warned against trying to affix blame for tragedy on the sinfulness of a particular person or group of people when he said to those who question him, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. I find that God does not often answer the why question about suffering and that a much better question to ask is how how would you have me respond lord in this crisis in this suffering how would you have me learn from this how would you have me grow through this how would you help me have me help others how would you have me respond in this crisis Psalm 16 is not only a psalm that predicts the resurrection of Jesus roughly a thousand years before his coming, but it also speaks to the how of our response in a time of suffering. And I say this both because of who wrote the psalm and the life circumstances out of which he wrote them. 
Commentators suggest that the best setting for Psalm 16 is the time in David's life when he was fleeing from King Saul. And we'll note that the psalm begins with the words, Preserve me, O God. David had been called by God to be the next king of Israel. But King Saul was insanely jealous of David and was seeking to take his life. And as a result, David was fleeing. David was hiding in caves in the wilderness. King David was unemployed. He was homeless. He was running for his life. And in those life circumstances, God used him to write Psalm 16 to help teach us how to respond in times of suffering. So that's the question I'd like to try to address this morning. How should you and I respond in times of difficulty, adversity, suffering? Number one, by knowing God the Lord as my Lord. David begins the psalm, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Notice the emphasis on God in these first two verses. Three times David uh, refers to God as you with the second person pronoun. But it's most interesting to note that David also uses three different Hebrew words for God. The first word he uses for God is the word El. El refers to God as the Almighty One, the one who's able to do all things. The second title David uses for God is simply the Lord. The Hebrew word he uses here is Yahweh or Jehovah. This is God's personal name. This is the name by which God revealed himself at the burning bush to Moses when Moses said, what do I tell the Israelites when they say, what is this God's name? God said, I am. I am that I am. Jehovah, God's personal name, often rendered as simply the Lord in our English Bibles with all capital letters. And then David uses a third word to refer to God when he speaks of God as my Lord, and it's the word Adonai, which can indicate master. In other words, David is beginning this psalm by saying, preserve me, O God, almighty God, the great I am the one who is my master, my Lord, my King. Here's the point. The greatest thing that can happen to a person in a time of crisis is to move from a mere intellectual knowledge of God and his ability as the Almighty One to a close personal relationship with him in which we can say, you are my Lord. A crisis can be a type of dividing line. Some people in a time of crisis turn away from God. They run from him. Others run to him. It's been said that the hearts of some people are like clay. The hearts of others are like wax. For some people, when the heat of adversity comes, their hearts become resistant, brittle. They harden their hearts against God. Others have hearts like wax, and they become more malleable. And in times of crisis, suffering, adversity, they're, they're being conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. 
in this present crisis, may we be people who can say, Almighty God, the Lord, you are my Lord. May we use this time to draw close to him in close personal relationship. Secondly, how should I respond in times of suffering? David teaches us this, by living in the light of God's counsel. Verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 16 read, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. This speaks to the closeness of relationship with the Lord. Even in the night, you, you awake with God on your mind. He is as near as your own heart. David says, even in the night, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. This speaks to giving purposeful, focused attention to God, seeking his will, desiring to know his will, seeking him in his word, wanting to do the will of God, keeping the Lord before us at all times. Frankly, none of us does this perfectly. Only one person ever has, and that was Jesus. Jesus, referring to himself as the Son of God, said the Son only does what he sees the Father doing. Imagine that. Jesus was claiming that he only, always, perfectly, fully and completely did the will of the Father. And this was not always easy by any means. In fact, on one occasion in particular, it was terribly, terribly hard. We read of this just prior to Jesus going to the cross in the Gospel of Luke chapter 22. He had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane with three of his closest followers, his disciples. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When I read those words, I want to ask, why such agony? that his sweat would be like drops of blood falling down to the ground. It was not because of his fear of the physical pain of crucifixion, terrible as that would be. Something far more horrible, something beyond our ability to comprehend, I believe, would take place on the cross because on the cross, the second person of the Trinity the one who knew no sin, the one had never, who had never experienced sin in his experience, the one who is the very definition of holy, the Son of God, would there on the cross bear our sin. The full weight of it would be poured out on him as if he were guilty of all. He would become the great substitute and in those three hours of darkness, something happened that we cannot really comprehend. 
when the holy judgment and wrath of God toward our sin was poured out upon the Son of God. And then he would utter the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus, the Son of God, perfectly did the will of the Father. You and I, through our faith in him, can live knowing that he will never forsake us. In fact, Jesus has told us, I'll be with you always. The book of Hebrews says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. As one of our elders said to me this week, God does not practice social distancing from his own people. How should I respond in times of suffering? By knowing God the Lord is my Lord, by living in the light of his counsel, and then thirdly, by resting in his eternal care. The final verses of the psalm, David writes, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or the grave, or Hades, as some versions say, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David is saying, because God Almighty, the Lord, is my Lord. Because I've always set the Lord before me, because God is at my right hand, I have joy. David goes on to say, my whole being rejoices. And in Declaring this, David speaks prophetically as a prophet. He's uttering words here that could not have been true of him. Because David would be buried. His body would decay. He would see corruption. The New Testament makes it very clear that David in this psalm, as a prophet, was looking forward ahead and speaking of the resurrection of Jesus. The apostle Peter gives us the first inspired interpretation of those words in the book of Acts chapter 2 where we read Peter's sermon from his sermon. This Jesus being delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now you see the quotation marks, he's quoting right from Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption." You've made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter, the apostle Peter, actually saw Jesus after his resurrection. He was one of the eyewitnesses. But here in his sermon, he's appealing not only to his eyewitness 
account of that, but to Scripture. He's saying David wrote about the resurrection of Jesus. Later, the Apostle Paul, preaching in Antioch, says these words. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried all that, out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And then the Apostle Paul will give certain scriptures as evidence. In verse 35 we read, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and laid with, was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised, raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Peter and Paul are saying that David, a thousand years earlier, looked ahead to a much, much greater joy than he could know in this life. Fullness of joy, as he says. And in so doing, he spoke of the resurrection of Jesus. Because of his resurrection, those who know him can rest in the same assurance of Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy. Like all people, Christians do face suffering in this life. Even Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can rest in his eternal care. We can know him not only as the one who guides us as the Lord our shepherd in this life, but as the great shepherd of the sheep who receives us into his presence in the life to come. We can know him as the one who said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. One of the beautiful Christian documents uh, in church history is called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a teaching tool in question and answer format. And as we end the message, I'd like to invite you to join me in saying aloud right there in your home what the Heidelberg Catechism says. I'll, I'll say the question and you will say the answer together. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now, I told you that we would do something today that those of us uh, who are part of River Oaks have never done before. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together at the very same moment. 
In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Luke chapter 21, we read that Jesus, before he went to the cross, gathered with his followers to celebrate the Passover feast. We read in Luke 22, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is the, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. If you've got a piece of bread in your house, uh, some juice or one of the little um, prepared cups that we provided for you, I want to invite you now to take that in hand, and we're going to celebrate communion together. But I first want to say this. The Apostle Paul, when he writes about the Lord's Supper, gives us a warning, and he says that we should examine ourselves before we eat of the bread or drink of the cup. The reason for that is that this is more than just a religious ritual. This is more than doing something just because we see in Scripture we should do this. This is a, a, a reflection on what Jesus did on the cross for us and a proclamation that we personally, individually, have received the benefits of his salvation. It's also a time to search our hearts and see if there's a need to ask God's forgiveness for something we've done or perhaps to forgive another person. So before we partake, I'd like to pray and then take a moment of silence to search our hearts. And then, if you so choose, uh, invite you to partake with me. Father, we pray now that you would help us by the Holy Spirit to celebrate this holy sacrament, this thing we call the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist in a way that really honors you that we would receive the full benefits of it, that our faith in you be renewed. Now, if you're listening this morning and you have never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, I would invite you now to pray a, a simple prayer saying something like this, Dear God, I do believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Savior and my Lord. Help me live for you from this day forward. Amen. I'll invite you now to take the bread, and if you're using one of our prepared cups, I will warn you it's a little tricky to peel the plastic piece off the top and take the little wafer. I'll give you just a moment, and then we'll partake together. The body of Christ 
given for you. Now I'll invite you to take um, the juice, if you have some type of uh, juice handy or one of our little prepared cups. I'll give you just a moment. And now, all together, the blood of Jesus shed for you. And now, I'd like to invite you to join me in saying together something that Christians have said for centuries, the Apostles' Creed. In fact, why don't we, if you're seated, stand up and say this together. Um, I'll give you just a moment. Now let's declare what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And would you say it with me now? The Lord is risen. And I can almost hear you saying, he's risen indeed. 